Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Well, uh, we are in the midst of summer, and this month we are highlighting something, a unique partnership, a new partnership that we began just this spring in 2019. Uh, It's a partnership that we call Kids Hope, and it's a special mentoring program that we have uh, been able to do with Lincoln County Schools, specifically at St. James Elementary. Uh, Kids Hope uh, creates a partnership between one church and one school where folks from the church can give one hour a week to make the difference, make a difference in one child's life. One adult, one child, one hour once a week. Get kind of a feel for that. So last week I told you a little bit about the mechanics of that, what that's all about. Today I wanted you to hear about someone who has been a part of Kids Hope uh, so they could share a little bit of their experience with you. So would you give a loud, thunderous 11 a.m. welcome to Meredith Menudier. Come on, she can come on up. All right, Meredith, I'll set the Oprah chairs up here so we get a little talk show vibe. Thanks for being here a second time. I've got my notes here in my cheat sheet in case I forget the questions I'm supposed to ask you that we talked about. You've got some stuff you want to put out too, just in case. It's just my little security blanket there. That's all right. That's all right. Most of, most of these folks have a security blanket like that too. Well, Meredith, uh, thanks for being here. You... You heard about this kind of call this last, gosh, it was March or April, uh, to possibly be a mentor, and uh, you were one of the crazy folks who actually said yes for the first lap around the trek. Tell us a little bit about um, uh, what, what was going through your mind that first time you heard mentoring, you thought, huh, maybe, maybe that'd be a fit for me. What were you thinking back then? Um, I just, I honestly just thought it would be fun. Um, my daughter is 16, so she's not as interested in the little cut, little kid stuff anymore. So, you know, you miss kind of the games and the simple joys of, you know, just being with little kids. So I just really thought it would be a fun opportunity. Yeah, well, and I teased Nick, your husband. He doesn't like playing Chinese checkers with you anymore then, does he? Uh, no. No, <laughs> fair enough. I don't think he ever played <laughs> Well, Meredith, uh, you know, you, you jumped in and... Uh, our, our directors, Tom and Lori, paired you uh, in partnership with the guidance counseling school, paired you with a, a student, and uh, you began meeting weekly. Uh, tell us a little bit about that relationship. What was that like? Uh, just describe a little bit of that to us. Um, so, yeah, um, my situation with, or the situation with my mentee was a little bit unique and that she had just lost a family member. Um, so we kind of started in the beginning. I, I brought a picture of my family the first time I came. Next time she brought a picture of her family. Um, she showed me around the school, introduced me to her teachers and her friends, and um, was very outgoing, very friendly. Um, you know, we bonded over just simple stuff. We'd have lunch together uh, to start off with, and we bonded over favorite foods and colors and superheroes and things like that. And, and then over time, um, you know, we started to talk a little bit about the loved one that she had lost. Um, so it just was um, really not anything more complicated than just being there. And I learned that you don't have to be talking about God to do God's work. You mm. just have to show up. Mm. That'll preach. We can just pray and go home now. We're done. We heard our <laughs> sermon. Yeah. Wow. 
Uh, Meredith, I, you know, I had shared with the church a couple weeks ago, I had read this statistic that children, even children in uh, supportive, loving, positive home environments, um, on average, are, are lucky if they get six or seven minutes, cumulative minutes a day, of adult eye contact and attention. And here's someone who's lost a family member going through just a difficult time. And here you are giving one hour of, of undistracted, uh, purely devoted time to that child. I can only imagine the difference that must have made in the child's life. Thank you for the way you're representing God's grace in that moment. Tell us tell us a little bit now, looking back. You, you did it for the first couple of months as we were doing our little beta test. Uh, and by the way, it's been a success. For work. That's why we're talking about today. We're, we're re-upping for another year. Uh, tell us, what are some of your favorite memories as you look back over those first couple months? Um, well, I'll share one. I will say one thing that I didn't mention in the last service, which was pretty funny. I was sitting having lunch with my mentee, and one of our little friends came up and said, Who is that? Such and such. Is that your grandma? <laughs> So that was an interesting moment, but anyway, that wasn't my favorite memory, but that was a memory. Anyway, it was pretty cute. That's right. We have counseling uh, services after right. uh, the service, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, could be. Um, no, I, sh- I shared last service that um, one, uh, one of my favorite memories was, um, well, when we would go into the kids' hope room, uh, my mentee was always very intrigued by the wheelchair, and she would always get in there and start pushing herself around. And um, as it turns out, her loved one spent a lot of time in a wheelchair um, before they died. And I shared with her that um, a lot of the patients that I see every day at the clinic and the hospital are also in wheelchairs. And so we decided to have a wheelchair race. And so we uh, pretended we were at the racetrack, we set up a little track, we pretended there were the fans and announcers. Uh, we even made a prize for the winner, and then we just acted it out. And she really enjoyed that. Awesome. Awesome. So, so, so it's not all math and reading. If they sign up, they get to have wheelchair races, because you have them at that if you can do that, right? Yeah. yeah. I love it. Uh, well, Meredith, we talked about this. There's some folks who are here, and they're thinking, gosh, Aaron, how many times are you going to talk about this? You know, okay. Um, what, what encouragement might you give that person today who's kind of on the fence, they're interested, they're not sure, what, what, what would you want to say to them? Um, I would just say that it's just all about um, quality time, giving quality time, uh, uh, spending quality time with a child that needs it. Um, the Kids Hope Program does an excellent job with their, um, with their training. Um, you've got Lori and Tom to support you, and you also have a prayer partner mine's right there, and uh, to pray over you and your child. And um, I would say don't worry about um, not knowing exactly what to say or what to do. The the time is structured, and it very easily moves you into different activities with the child, and and the child will lead you in what they want to do. So I would just say just consider if it's something that you might be able to participate in. Um, I, it's, it's really nice to have um, a friend who is that excited to see you every week, and you will be excited to see them too. Mm-hmm. Well, Meredith, uh, Jesus makes no buts about it. He says the, the best thing we can do is make space for the least of these. Uh, thank you for the way you've been doing that, welcoming children uh, in Jesus' name. Uh, thanks for the way you're leading us in that. Uh, can we thank Meredith for coming today? Thank you, guys. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. 
Well, we've got uh, a little table in back, and because we know you, we've got cookies back there to bribe you to stop by. So stop by, grab a cookie. It does not obligate you to anything. Just stop by, get a little bit of info, and consider if this might be uh, your year to step up and make a difference in a child's life. Yeah, that's all right. I like it. I, it's probably nicer than mine. That's uh, Yeah, thank you. All right, well, we are continuing our series today called Superlatives, uh, looking at heroes of the faith out of Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, I was thinking about this title, Superlatives, and it made me think of my youngest son, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, from, from the for young, young, young years, his favorite words were always the superlatives, the words that ended in E-S-T and est, right? Words like biggest, greatest, mostest, these are his favoritist words in his vocabulary. So he would say things like, Dad, Dad, who's the smartest? Dad, who's the richest? Dad, who's the fastest? And the correct answer to all those questions is, well, well Dad is, right? Dad is the smartest. That's just obvious. So, uh, But one day we were driving in the car, and I remember, you could tell he'd been pondering this next question. Uh, he'd been pondering it for a while, because he, he, you know, he's always comparing stuff. So he says, Dad, how big is God? Like, really? Dad, how, how big is God? Is he bigger than Los Angeles? That's where we were living at the time. I said, yes, he's bigger than Los Angeles. He said, is he bigger than the Pacific Ocean? Which is pretty big for a little kid. Mine's big for me. I said, yes, he's bigger than the Pacific Ocean. Dad, is he bigger than the whole earth? Well, yes, he's bigger than the whole earth. And then Jeremiah got this little wry smile. I could tell his brain was working. He said, Dad, is God bigger than you? I said, hold on, no, let's not get carried away here, right? Let's not go. There's a limit, right? But it's an interesting question when you think about it. How big is God? Have you ever wondered that? How big is God? That's what I want to talk about with you this morning because here's the reality. Here, here's what's true for every last one of us. Whether we would describe ourselves as a Christ follower or as a skeptic or a spiritual explorer, here's what's true for all of us. How big you think God is, the size of your God, how big you think God is, will determine, will determine the kind of life you live. How big you think God is, will determine the kind of life you live. Some people think that this idea of a big God, that God, a God who is so big, so vast, so omnipotent, so powerful, that this says that he could not possibly care about or help us in practical aspects of our lives. But I actually want to suggest that that's not our problem. Our problem is actually quite the opposite of this. What I want to suggest today is that for many of us, our idea of God is too small. We suffer from what I'm going to call today SGS, Shrunken God Syndrome. That's supposed to be kind of funny, but it isn't this morning, huh? Yeah, that's all right. A little more caffeine. We'll get there. We'll get there. The truth is, the truth is that we all suffer from shrunken God syndrome at one time or another. At some point in our lives, we will all face a hardship or a difficulty or an opportunity or a divine encounter that is bigger than what our current resources can handle. In fact, if you live life long enough, and by which I mean you live life long enough to enter middle school, you will have a problem bigger than what you can face, right? I mean, that's what middle school is. Encountering problems bigger than how we know how to handle them. 
And if you suffer from shrunken God's sentiment, if your God is not big enough to handle those problems, you will not know where to turn. You will not know what to do. The truth is we all face this at one time or another. When we live with shrunken God syndrome, we pray without faith, we worship without awe, we suffer without hope, and the result is a life that is ruled by fear and paralyzed by insecurity. So, what hope is there for those of us who suffer from shrunken God syndrome? Well, good news, not going to surprise you, good news, I think the Bible actually offers some remarkable insight when it comes to this condition. In fact, the writers of the scriptures never tire in telling us about a God who is bigger, a God who is able, a God who is stronger. In fact, these are the very favorite stories that the writers of scripture love to tell. Someone who encounters something bigger than they are, who must learn to rely on a God who is big enough to help them. Because, because, here's our bottom line up front, how big you think God is will determine the kind of life you live. So that's where we're headed today, and uh, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament, a guy named Gideon. Uh, how many of y'all have heard of Gideon before, right? Gideon Bibles, remember those, those th- Bibles in the drawers at the hotel that you never read, right? Because you know, the remote's right there too, why would you, right? Anyway, so uh, Gideon, that's, that's who the Bible's named for. Gideon's story comes from the book of Judges. And because we don't often talk about the book of Judges, I want to take just a minute to give you a little bit of background. Because the book of Judges is actually one giant tragedy. Think about that Shakespeare play that you had to read in high school, right? Everything just goes south. That's exactly what the book of Judges is all about. Now, you'll remember from the beginning of the Bible to the end, God has a plan. This is God's plan. He wants to form a people who will serve him as their king, as their leader, so that he can bless them and they can be a blessing to the world. That's God's plan. It's always been his plan. It's his plan for us today, too. And so God, we talked about this two weeks ago, through a leader named Joshua, leads his people. Remember, Moses led them out of slavery, but then they got stranded in a 40-year camping trip. Joshua leads them up to the river. We talked about this. They step in the river. They cross into the promised land. They're now in the land where they can now have their own nation. God will be their king. They will not have a king. God will be their king. And so God gives Joshua the Torah, which is, we call it the law, but it's so much more than law. It's guidelines for how they can live and honor God, be blessed, and be a blessing to others. So... Pop quiz, how does God's people do at honoring and living by the Torah? Well, they fail miserably, right? I mean, they're terrible at it. And over and over and over again, they turn away from God. So the book of Judges is all about that story. Welcome to the book, right? That's kind of what it's all about. And there's this pattern that we see play out over and over again. It starts like this. God's people turn away from him. They start worshiping these tribal gods, Canaanite gods, Baal, all that kind of stuff. Then everything goes to pot and oppression and their enemies come in. Then they cry out to God and he raises up a judge, that's a military leader, to deliver them. And then there's a time of peace again. And then the same thing happens all over again and they repeat the cycle and that happens. Guess what? Twelve times in the book of Judges that cycle plays out. Symbolically, this is a little bit nerdy, symbolically once for each tribe of Israel. Interesting. Kind of like the Apostle Paul says, there is no one who is righteous, all have turned away. Well, that's the book of Judges in a nutshell. Okay, so now that you've got a background for the book of Judges, this is where our story picks up with Gideon. 
I want to tell you about uh, his story. Because Gideon starts in chapter 6. And right from the beginning, we learn that Gideon has a really, 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 really big problem. His big problem is called the Midianites. Now, the Midianites are a neighboring nation. Uh, and, and they're kind of like hell's angels on camelbacks. Uh, every year during the harvest season, they would cruise into town, ACDC blaring on their Harley Camelsons. It's as good as it's getting today, I'll tell you, I promise you. And they come in, and here's what they, they ravage the whole town, right? I mean, they just steal everything. And what do the Israelites do? Well, they do what you and I would do. They run and hide in the caves, right? Because they're scared of, of, you know, the Harley Campbellson. So they're, they're hiding out. And this has been going on for seven years, over and over and over again. And finally, God's people cry out. They had forgotten him for a long time. They cry out, and God hears their cry. That's where our story picks up, verse 11. The angel of the Lord, this is scene one, scene one stuck in a pit. Scene one, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, not Oprah, she's been around for a long time, but not that long, in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now pause here for a second. What's going on? Let's get the scene here a little bit. A wine press was a little pit usually six to ten feet deep. We don't know exactly. Uh, We have uh, some uh, archaeological evidence of this. Uh, A pit of a stony pit in the ground. And everyone knows, everyone knows that if you're going to thresh wheat, you don't do it down in a pit. You do it up where the wind can blow, right? Because the wind would blow away the chaff, leaving the good part that you wanted. So he's down here in this wine press, and and threshing wheat in a wine press would be kind of like trying to make coffee in a thimble. It's just ridiculous, right? Especially if it's me, uh, the amount of coffee I drink. So what is he doing here? Why is he threshing wheat down in the pit? Well, he's afraid. He's terrified that the Midianites are going to see, and they're going to come, and they're going to plunder everything he's got. So he's settled for life in the pit, a little life with a little God, in a little pit with a little bit of grain that he can hide and hoard for himself. But look at what the angel says in the next verse. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, what? The Lord is with you. Interesting. And then he adds on these two words, which which almost sound like a joke. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. The Lord is with you, you mighty wuss, would have been a better uh, descriptor of what he's doing right here. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. I'm not asking you to pretend to have more than you got. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And I just love Gideon's response here because it's almost like he thinks he's being punked, right? Anyone old enough to remember uh, Candid Camera, Candid Camera folks, right? It's almost like he thinks he's on camera, can, uh, Candid Camera or for those MIM TV generation, uh, Ashton Kutcher's about to show up and punk him, you know, something like that, right? He thinks this is a joke. Look at what he says. <clears throat> Pardon me, my Lord, <laughs> but you've got the wrong dude. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. In other words, God, have you not seen the Midianites? Have you not seen how big these guys are? I'm the weakest, I'm the smallest, I'm the puniest in my family. It's like me against Thanos on a camel. He's got that glove thing with stones, I'm going to get crushed, right? I mean, whatever it is. But look at how God responds. The Lord answered again, I will be with you, 
What's the Lord doing? You know, oftentimes I'll talk to someone and they're facing just incredible life adversity, right? It might be financial, it might be at work, it might be relational, it might be medical. And they're just facing something. And then someone will come along and, and they're so well-meaning. I mean, they really are well-meaning, but they'll say something like, you know what, buck up, hang in there. Remember the Bible says the Lord doesn't give us more than we can handle, right? And that kind of sounds good on the surface. And they mean well. The only problem is the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible is one long story of God giving people stuff they can't handle. That's the entire thing, Right? I mean, death itself, we cannot handle. And guess what? Last time I checked, the death rate is 100%. I don't know if it's changed in the last hour or two, but that's kind of where it's at. That's the scripture. In fact, the promise of God in the scriptures is not that we will never face situations beyond our own capacity or strength. The promise of God in the scriptures is that he is with us and that he is big enough to help us face whatever it is that comes our way. I was thinking about an example of this. I remember uh, one time when my daughter was uh, about five or six years old, and we had to take her to go get some shots. And uh, this was quite disturbing to her, as would have been for you as a five or six-year-old, too. So she's sitting on the floor, and they're just t- kind of tears running down. You can picture this, right? And so I'm going to be the good dad, and I'm going to give the pep talk. And so I'm sitting there with her, and, oh, Zoe, don't worry. You, you can do this. It's not really going to hurt. And, and besides, we can go get ice cream afterwards, you know. And, and none of this is working. She's not having it. You know, she knows better. She knows it's going to hurt. And so then her mom comes in, gets down on the floor, takes her hand, looks her in the eyes and says, Zoe, it's going to hurt, but I will be there and I will hold your hand through the whole thing. And she looks up at her mom and says, okay, mommy. <laughs> I guess I was the one who needed the ice cream. <laughs> Let's get honest. <laughs> God is doing something like that in this moment. Do you see this? Gideon is in this pit. Literally in a pit. He's at his lowest point. He's given up on any kind of life worth living. And where does God meet him? But he meets him right in the pit. And he says, Gideon, I'm big enough. Gideon, I'm strong enough. Gideon, I will be with you. Take my hand. Will you trust me? Which brings us to scene number two, the wet blanket. When we come to scene two later in the chapter, Gideon has come out of the pit. He's at least gotten up out of it. He's on normal ground. uh, And he's still not quite sure he's ready to trust God and go and face the Midianites. In fact, he's kind of hoping to throw a wet blanket on the whole thing. Look with me at verse 36. Gideon says to God, if, notice this, if. You will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that's exactly what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, and had a whole bowlful of water. Then, then, as if that wasn't enough, Gideon said to God, don't be angry at me, God, don't, don't, uh, but, but look, j- just one more request, let, let me make one more request, allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time, can you make the fleece dry and the ground wet with do this, God, can you do that this time? What's happening here? Gideon's testing, right? He's looking for some kind of proof. 
You may have heard the phrase setting out a fleece used in the context of discerning God's will in our lives. And what I want to point out here is that laying out a fleece, setting out a fleece, was not a positive thing in the Bible, right? God had already promised Gideon he was going to save Israel. That promise had already been given. God had already demonstrated his bigness. The fleece was not an expression of trust. The fleece is an expression of immature faith. Sometimes people will use this whole fleece idea in kind of a manipulative or even superstitious way. In fact, uh, comedian Ken Davis tells about a guy who was uh, driving down the road and he sees this bakery ahead and he says, All right, Lord, if there is a parking spot in front of the bakery when I drive by, then I will know it is your will that I go inside and eat a donut. And sure enough, after the fifth time around the block, there was a parking space right in front, right? I mean, You see how we can twist this whole fleece thing. But the amazing thing about God, this so struck me this week. The amazing thing is, as petty as this is, God graciously condescends to meet Gideon right where he is at. Why? Because God is committed to growing Gideon's faith. God is committed to growing his faith. Remember what Caesar taught us last week. Jesus is not only the beginner of our faith, but the perfecter of it. God's committed to growing Gideon's faith. And so God says, Gideon, if we're done with the little magic tricks now, I've got something I want to show you. I want to give you a picture of just how big I really am. Which leads us to scene three, beginning chapter seven. This scene begins, Gideon has gathered 32,000 soldiers. That sounds pretty good, right? The only problem is the Midianite army numbered 135,000, which means Gideon was outnumbered four to one. So the Lord shows up and Gideon, the Lord says, you know, Gideon, we have a numbers problem. Gideon says, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm so glad you're finally going to wise up to this situation here because I've been wondering. I just think we need to. And before he can finish his sentence, God says, you've got too many people. I want you to go to the soldiers and ask anyone who's afraid to raise their hand. And anyone who raises their hand, tell them they get to go home. So Gideon does that. He says, anyone afraid? 10,000 dudes raise their hand. And like that, Gideon's army goes from 32,000 to 22,000. Now he's facing odds of 13 to 1. But God's not done yet, right? Because these are not quite God-sized numbers. So... He says, Gideon, we still have a number problem. And you can kind of picture Gideon just rolling his eyes at this point. Like, how bad is this going to get, right? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send some men down, take them down to the water, and I will sift them there for you. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to Drink. This is one of those times where, like, the Bible, what? So 300 men go, and they lap like dogs. They pull up the water with their hands. They go. It's really fun to make that noise with the microphone. Can I do that again? You get the feel, right? And then the other guys, they just bury their face into the river. They go, 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 right? Now, if you've heard this story before, you might have heard that that somehow the dudes who lap like dogs made better soldiers because they could keep a lookout for other people coming or something. That's a bunch of hogwash. Let me tell you why. (laughs) Because any time the Bible compares a human being to a dog, it is not good. It's never good. It's never a compliment. In fact, uh, one Old Testament theologian, let me get his name. I've got it here. Um, 
Doug Stewart, thank you. Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart puts it this way. Listen how he describes it. He has most likely this idea of the guys lapping water like dogs uh, was really an act that would have been considered geeky or nerdy. These were not the elite troops. They were more like guys working at Google. Now, in, to, in modern warfare, you need some Google guys, don't you? Because there's a lot of computers. But in this day, you did not need Google guys in your army. These were not the elite troops. The whole point of God winnowing down the troops to 300 Googleites is to make it clear to everyone when they won the battle who the victory belonged to. Whose victory would it be? It would be God's victory and God's alone. The hope was that Israel could then again break its cycle of sin, trusting in little gods, and instead turn back to its infinitely big God, as they were created to do. So, how does the story end? Well, Gideon's standing there. He's looking at 300. He's looking at God. God looks at Gideon and says, Gideon, hold my beer, right? I mean, that's just going to, and God just goes all in. And look at this. Here it goes. Gideon and the hundred men. And he has a hundred, by the way, because they've divided into three groups. That's going to be their attack. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's the middle of the night. Just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hand. Now, this is a little bit odd, but what you need to know is they had their lamps hidden inside clay jars. So they had enough light to see where they were walking, but the Midianites would not see them coming from far away. Do you get that picture? So they're standing outside the camp. They smash the jars, revealing their light. They're kind of torches in one hand. And then they're holding their trumpets in the other. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand, holding in their right hands the trumpets. They were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, where's the sword? I got a torch and a trumpet. No swords. Okay. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to that place, toward that other place, as far as the border of those other places. (laughs) Now, let me ask you. In the story of Gideon, who won the battle? Who gets victory here? How big is Gideon's God? Well, the truth is that he's big enough to defeat an army of 135,000 with nothing more than a marching band of 300 people carrying trumpets and flashlights, right? That's the truth. And that's the lesson that God wanted to teach Gideon. It's the lesson he wanted to teach his people Israel, and it's the lesson he wants to teach you and me today. Because it really is true. It really is true that how big you think God is will determine the kind of life you live. So the most important question for us this morning might simply be this. How big is your God? How big is your God? I've been thinking a lot about this question this week. Uh, you know, I'm just in a season in my own life. This is kind of just a little Aaron confession. I'm in a season in my own life where I'm up against some things that just feel bigger than me. 
Some of those are good things, good challenges, areas of growth. Some, some of them are, are places just just difficulty and and uh, you know it's caused some stress. It's caused some anxiety in me that I haven't known what to do with. In fact, we're going to be doing a whole series on worry and anxiety beginning the first week of August. And if that's part of your story, I invite you to mark your calendars and plan to be with us. Uh, but but I've really struggled in this. I've, and I've come back again and again over these last couple weeks to this very question. Aaron, Aaron, how big is your God? How big is your God? Is he big enough to be with you through even this thing you're facing now. Aaron, how big is your God? And you know what's been amazing for me? And this, I'm a pastor. This should not surprise me. But you know what's really amazing? Is that when I'm facing that big thing and I, I pull away for even just a moment to pray, just to talk, just to be present to God, and I say, God, would you help me to remember how big you are, how big you've been in my life? If I, if I stay there long enough, it not, it's not like a science, it's not like math, but that big thing I'm facing begins to shrink just a little bit, and God gets bigger, almost in that very moment. Aaron, how big is your God? You see, the remarkable promise of Christianity, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, you ever decide that that's something you'd like to do, uh, you need to know this. You need to know this about being a Christian. The incredible promise of Christianity is not that we will live lives free of fear and struggle. We won't. But the remarkable promise of Christianity is this, that in a very real and mysterious way, God can be present with us right in the midst of our greatest challenges. Right when our environment is swirling out of control, there can be an inner reality where God is big enough, God is enough, He really is. I think that's why the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, he said, I can do all things. I can face all things. I can sit in a prison cell. I can face anything life has to throw at me through him who gives me strength, through Jesus. Because Jesus is God with me. Nobody else can give you that kind of peace. No one. Not your circumstances, not your talent, not your natural abilities, not your accomplishments. They cannot give you this peace. This peace comes only from God. And this is Jesus' invitation to each and every one of us. He says to us again today, I am bigger than your problems. I am bigger than your failures. I am bigger than your regrets. I am bigger than your past mistakes. I am bigger than your sin and your guilt. And if you will let me, if you will try me, if you will invite me, I will come into your life and I will be your forgiver, your friend, your companion, and yes, your strength. God knows. God knows about the Midianites in our lives. He's not surprised by that. He knows the challenges we face. And he says, will you let me be enough for you? Can we pray?